You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Impeachments are just as useful when they're not used as when they are, because they do constrain presidential behavior. Elbridge Gerry, he had a great line. He said, a good magistrate, meaning the president, a good magistrate will not fear them. A bad one ought to be kept in fear of them. It is a great pleasure to have on the program once again, David Priest. He has recently written a book that is out now called How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. And David joins me now. David, thanks for coming on again. Bruce, it is a pleasure to be back and to have the opportunity to talk about a wider range of presidential history with you than just the modern president. Certainly, certainly. I like the book in that the first thing a lot of people are going to see, they'll they'll look at the cover and there's kind of a vague Nixonish image uh, there <laughs> and they'll think about impeachment and you get into that and that's the obvious uh, way of getting rid of a president. But you really take a broad view, including even people who were likely to be president, uh, say Henry Clay or Hillary Clinton, who were removed by not becoming president at all. Yeah, I took a wide definition here, Bruce, because what I've seen in the last, let's say, 18 months or so, when I started working on the project, I saw a lot of people talking about impeachment or occasionally people bringing up the 25th Amendment. But very few people were taking the bigger historical look at what are all of the ways that we deal with getting rid of a president. We, we focus a lot on elections. We focus a lot of attention on how presidents get into office and all of the politics and coalition building that goes into that. But we spend almost no attention looking at the ways that presidents have left office. Depending on how you define it, that's all of them. Every president has left office, usually through a constitutional method, like being mm -hmm. voted out of office, being term limited out. Uh, but there are many ways that presidents have left office other than impeachment, which I argue has worked once. Uh, Richard Nixon, I think, left because of impeachment, even if he was not formally there till the end of the impeachment process. But otherwise, impeachment is a pretty it's a pretty thin argument to make if you're saying that's the only way to get rid of a president. So uh, hopefully we'll talk about some of the other methods because there's a whole bunch of other ways that presidents have ended up leaving the White House. Yeah, I do sometimes when I hear that no one has ever been impeached. It, it's really 
Kind of like saying one isn't caught of a crime when they take a plea to it. You know, it's like, no, absolutely. There was a president that really, in effect, the impeachment power was the thing that was used to force a resignation. So if you give up before you're impeached, I mean, what are we to make of that? But it is something that has been rarely used. I mean, Luther Martin, uh, delegate to the Con- Constitutional Convention who left in in disgust uh, and later told the Maryland legislature not to ratify the Constitution, but they didn't listen to him. But he had a great uh, comment that this impeachment, I mean, it's never going to work. The president's too powerful. So it does seem like a, a bit of a last resort. There are other uh, methods that you talk a bit about in the book, and, and one of them is simply um, – not really uh, taking a character or taking a, a person who has designs for the presidency and being sure that and, and really by all estimations and predictions mm-hmm. should be president, you know, to the point that people are already thinking about their administration. And recently, Hillary Clinton comes to mind, who, who, who has, you know, in effect been removed from the presidency, right? Whereas a lot of talk in 2014 and 2015, even 2016, would have been assumptive that we're, what's going to happen in the Clinton presidency. But if we go back a bit, a lot of that applies to Henry Clay. That's right. We have, we have very clear cases in the past. And this is the one I struggled with most, Bruce, because some of these methods like impeachment or obviously death. This one I struggled with because a fine line separates fair means and foul means in politics. And maybe somebody was just a better candidate than another candidate. And that's why they won the popular vote or that's why they won the electoral vote. I mean, we have laws that keep the playing field reasonably level, but it's really about the norms. It's about where luck and influence end and illicit activities begin. So in looking at what I call the preemptively dismissed presidents, the ones who were removed before they could even come to office. I thought, well, that looks like a pretty attractive strategy to political opponents, sometimes within one's own party, who say that this person's election, either in the next election or further down the road, looks so certain that we're going to face a situation with a president who then we're going to have to undermine or remove let's just remove them preemptively. Let's keep him or her out of the office altogether. In Henry Clay's case, I mean, what a resume. This is somebody who is probably less well-known to the average American than even some of our lesser-known presidents, like a Millard Fillmore or a Chester Arthur. Henry Clay just doesn't pop up there. And yet researching his life and going back and reading some of the original sources of people who knew him he he was an impressive man. He did more by the time he was 40 or 50 years old than, than most of our leaders have done in their whole life. A uh, little bit reminiscent of a James Monroe or a James Buchanan in terms of his preparation for the office. But time and time again, he, he was foiled. Uh, Andrew Jackson, of course, the rivalry there was the main issue. But in the book, I get into some of the other fun stories about Clay that show If you go back in American history and you're trying to form that dinner party or probably a late night drinking and card playing party of the people that you could bring back and just sit and talk to, Henry Clay's got to be on that list. Just a fascinating individual. Yeah, and I think it it comes out of a lot is that their their very success works against them in some ways. It's particularly in the case of Clay. They're 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 successful legislatively. They're successful Mm -hmm. in 
passing legislation, building coalitions, but also angering people at the same time. And And that's the key. That's the key. It's not just success, although maybe there is something to that. It's the way in which Clay succeeded. Clay did not succeed in a, if I can make a parallel here, to a Newt Gingrich fashion where he would barnstorm and tear down opponents and rip them apart and burn bridges. Clay Clay built compromises. I mean, one of his many nicknames is the Great Compromiser. He's the one who would find a way to get things done. Now, some of those things were things like kicking the can of slavery down the road so that there wasn't a civil war. And that's that's debatable, whether that's good policy in retrospect because it extended slavery. And for those under that horrible condition, there's no excuse for it. On the other hand, he was trying to avoid a bloodletting and civil war. But in the act of doing those compromises, in the very act of bringing people together for what he thought was the national interest, his reputation became one of somebody who's always willing to make a deal. And Americans, for better or for worse, don't always like somebody who is willing to bend and give somebody else the benefit of the doubt and find a way to get things done. Sometimes they just like a clear winner. And Andrew Jackson put out that image of himself as a clear winner in a way that Henry Clay was never able to do. You talk about another method throughout history where presidents have been removed or where, um, in this case, where there's the potential to remove a president. And one of the other ones that's very big is, is, that, that people know about is the displacement due to health concerns sure specifically expressed in the 25th, but even before there was a 25th. Now, that, and I do want to address that a bit, but one of the stories I found very interesting is that the you talk about the War of 1812, and you talk about how we, we know that the British burned Washington. It's not as well known that uh, Madison barely escapes, the president barely escapes, could have been kidnapped, and you would have had a situation where the president is kidnapped by a foreign power. And now what do you to do? Me, th- this was a story that I, I was not really prepared to, to investigate. I didn't know. I knew about the burning of the White House and many other government buildings uh, when the British came to Washington in the War of 1812. But I, I had not realized that James Madison almost lost the ability to fulfill his oath of office, not due to physical injury, but actual capture. He had been out at Bladensburg, where there was a battle east of the uh, the seat of government at the time, and it did not go well. And sure enough, he races back to the White House, and so do the troops that come back. But if he would have been captured, you would have had a president who was unable to serve. Now, it's not the way we traditionally think of it. We traditionally think of a president being unable to serve as being somebody who has had a health condition, somebody who has had a stroke Mm -hmm. like Woodrow Wilson did that essentially disabled him or uh, an assassination attempt like Garfield's where the president is not doing well, but he's, he's, he's alive. So you have to deal with what do you do with the health condition? But in this Mm -hmm. case, Madison could have been captured by the British, clearly unable to execute the duties of the office And then it would probably go to the vice president, Elbridge Gerry. Now, if he would have taken over due to Madison's kidnapping, what would have happened? Would he have handed the reins back to Madison if Madison escaped or was given back? That's how it's supposed to work. But as we saw with John Tyler 
rising to the presidency upon the death of William Henry Harrison in 1841, constitutional meanings are influenced by practice. And Gary might have said, well, I'm the president and the Constitution doesn't have any provision for me giving it back. The 25th Amendment now has some provision for that. Uh, the, the historical counterfactuals get fun for me. And what, what I found researching this was Gary couldn't have exercised the, the powers and duties of the office for long because he died just over a year later after that incident near Washington, D.C. And the next in line of succession would have been the president pro tem of the Senate at the time. And, and that would have been great because right after Gary's death, senators put into that position uh, a great South Carolinian who would have been wonderful. But at the actual time of Gary's death, it would have gone to a South Carolinian who was an absolute disaster. He was already urging in 1814 for the southern states to secede and form a confederacy. You would have had a very different American history if Madison just would have been a couple of minutes slower getting back to the White House and then escaping to the west of Washington. That is interesting, and we should remember that originally Booth's plan was to kidnap Lincoln, <laughs> so you could have had a kidnapped president. Fast-forwarding through history, certainly the construction of the 25th Amendment has elements of this, maybe not thinking about a kidnapping, but is certainly um, in the debate with Birch Bayh and Robert Kennedy on the Senate floor right. during the construction of the 25th Amendment. There was certainly talk of partial uh, disability, just a simple inability to, let's be frank, order the nukes, mm -hmm. sleeping and can't wake up, indisposed, just not in a good state, having taken medicine, all of these things, right. and it sort of comes back, uh, that that whole idea of the needing the president, this time not against a British force in uh, on the shores, but uh, nuclear weapons hitting the United States. That's right. Back in the time of Madison and many subsequent presidents, the, the issue of having a president immediately available, yes, it was important, especially as commander-in-chief during wartime, but it was not as crucial as it was during the nuclear era. At that point, the nation's survival is, is a matter of minutes, in theory. So the 25th Amendment, the fact that it only came about in the late 1960s, is a bit of a shock, given what happened to Eisenhower uh, in, in his administration. In three successive years, he had three illnesses, any one of which could have completely disabled him. And there was no clear provision. He had an understanding with Nixon as vice president, but it was not constitutionally guaranteed that things would work out as smoothly as they did. Even that didn't prompt Birch Bayh and the others to do it, as you've covered in previous podcasts. It, it really did take the assassination of Kennedy and the thought, well, what happened if he was lingering in a coma for months at a time? That really spurred them forward and drove the constitutional change that was needed. There's always talk about impeachment. You know, when I, if, I, if I was to say, oh, there's a lot of talk about impeachment today because there's a certain group of people who don't like the president, there's always talk about impeachment. I, I think that happens um, the, the minute the chief justice of the United States swears the president in, the next thing that needs to happen is somewhere in America, a bumper sticker with an impeach X is, um, is placed on a car. <laughs> Although these, these days with all the leasing, I don't know if people do that anymore. Put that aside. But the interesting thing that you note in your book is that the Constitutional Convention thought long and hard about this when they came up with impeachment and that um, impeachment would be necessary. And in fact, going back to the talk about presidential assassinations and the like, 
there's at least one delegate that thought that impeachment might save the president's life. Um, Benjamin Franklin, who's known to say things like this, you know, just said that uh, without impeachment, critics would have to turn to assassination. So perhaps as much as presidents hate impeachment and it's used by political opponents, it might have saved more than a few incumbents. You need to use the mechanisms available to you through the democracy. That's right. And and that was the experience of the founders looking around them. Several of them knew their history well. Franklin, among others, was want of citing examples from the United Netherlands and other places in Europe, as well as Roman and Greek history. And they looked back and said, you know, if there is not a, a, a systematic, a, a norm-based way of removing a leader nonviolently, what happens? I, I was shocked looking back at the debates in the Constitutional Convention and talking to some no-kidding constitutional scholars about this and finding that so many of the so many of the inflection points around whether to impeach or not to impeach were brought up by the delegates in what seemed to be just random conversation because they did not dwell on it long. But you had a delegate from North Carolina pointing out, if the president is not impeachable while in office, the the president might spare no efforts or means to get himself reelected. This could be the slippery slope toward getting back to a monarchy through reelection by manipulating the process. Uh, George Mason definitely wanted to have something in there to impeach a president because he was worried about simple malpractice or neglect of duty. Uh, Elbridge Gary, who we mentioned a few moments ago, ended up as vice president. He, he had a great line, one of my favorites for, that I found in the book. He said, a good magistrate, meaning the president, a good magistrate will not fear them. A bad one ought to be kept in fear of them. That is, impeachments are just as useful when they're not used as when they are, because they do constrain presidential behavior at the extremes, even without being put into practice. Oh, yes, I, I think that's rather true. Oh, and a reminder that I'm speaking with David Priest. This is his third appearance on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, also, also the author of The President's Book of Secrets. His book is How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit chief executives. He's also a listener to the show. Let's talk a little bit about impeachment uh, and the and the particularly, you know, the Johnson um, example, but also some, there's some interesting um, potential uses of impeachment that we don't think about a lot, like such as when the somewhat unpopular Truman takes over from Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, for me, impeachment is uh, both the, the best known way of removing a president other than not voting them back into office, but, but also the one that people don't go back and look at the history enough because you have the cases of actual impeachment proceedings that led to an impeached president in the House of Representatives like Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, in cases where they were not convicted by the Senate. But you also have other cases where the impeachment processes were, were started but did not necessarily accomplish that direct goal of impeaching or removing the president. Instead, they tried to constrain presidential behavior. The The first vote taken on impeachment was against John Tyler, who was irritating his own party, the Whigs, after the death of William Henry Harrison and his ascension to the presidency. Moving forward, you've had impeachment resolutions introduced by representatives 
against many presidents, many more of them in the modern era than in the first uh, probably century of American politics. I was surprised there were not impeachment resolutions brought up and voted on against people like Abraham Lincoln, who had controversial policies at the time, and others, the early presidents, even with the dramatic tension between people like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, impeachment wasn't a thing. They, They just simply didn't bring it up against a president. The one that I found most interesting was Harry Truman, that Harry Truman actually had strong talk of impeachment, and it wasn't because of some dramatic policy that he did uh, regarding foreign policy overall or a domestic mm-hmm. policy gone wrong. It was simply because he fired General MacArthur. And when that happened, Republican legislators, conservative newspapers were prepping the ground. There were statements out there saying the only choice is to impeach President Truman. And that's talk that hadn't really occurred much in American history since the Johnson impeachment. Sure, there had been occasional calls for impeachment against other presidents. I think I found some resolutions introduced against Grover Cleveland and Herbert Hoover. People said things about FDR and the New Deal that this was outrageous. But it really was places like the Chicago Tribune against Harry Truman that said he must be impeached and convicted. This is actually showing he is unfit morally and mentally for this high office. But a funny thing happened, which is then, of course, MacArthur goes and uh, testifies. And when he gives test uh, testimony and Omar Bradley also gives testimony, Omar Bradley looks much more apolitical and, and looks much more respectable than MacArthur did. And he seemed to contradict some of MacArthur's own assertions about what he was advocating for that led Truman to to fire him. And the situation turned relatively quickly. And I think that's the lesson is if there's an unpopular decision by a president, that puts the president in the realm of unpopular. That does not necessarily put the president in the realm of unfit, which is really what impeachment is meant to address. The book could almost be titled, you know, how to get rid of a president or when not to. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting history that sometimes it's used and sometimes it's overused, certainly. It appears to me with all those examples that where the impeachment seems to be used, one red flag would be a president who has um, two-thirds of the politics of Washington against them is a really bad situation to be in because, of course, it's two-thirds of the Senate that you you need to survive. Uh, I should say you need to impeach. So it's interesting because I think uh, you look at Cleveland, so there's a guy that had – was angering Democrats, his own party, because he was a reformer Democrat, and then also angering uh, some of the more liberal Democrats, the silver Democrats, and then angering as well the Republicans, because he wasn't a Republican. So there's a person subject to it. Truman comes in, nobody's nightmare, mediocre choice for vice president, kind of, that no one's quite aware of to make the bosses happy, and now becomes president. And it's probably a a little bit easier to talk about impeachment, especially when you get to the 50s. And Truman is, um, while the impeachment decision or the impeachment talk wasn't about the economy, the economy and all the rationing of the economy and people getting getting angry about things and the communist threat and was eroding some of the popularity there. And then that subjects the person for Uh impeachment. Um, Truman also 
uh, it's it's questionable in my mind whether he wanted the nomination in fifty two. Um, he could okay. have. It probably wasn't going to be made available to him. And so there's myriad ways that you can talk about if a president is unpopular of of removing them from having the executive power. And one is that their own party can can do it. Um, it's not something we see rarely, though, as you're, it's something we see rarely in modern times as your book gets into. But there were a few mm-hmm. precedents in the, at least in the mm-hmm. 19th century of parties simply saying, we're, we're not going to renominate you, Mr. President. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, it was such an interesting dynamic, Bruce, that, that I treated that as a whole chapter. I thought one of the methods of removing a president is being rejected by your own party. And in some cases, there is some historical interpretation there. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is is an interesting case for me because in my mind, reading through what he wrote, looking at some of the interviews he's given, looking at the totality of his political experience, he wanted the renomination in 1968. He he was Mm -hmm. ready to fly Mm -hmm. to Chicago on a moment's notice, and he may have been prepping the ground to do it, but it just didn't quite work out. Uh, Similar in some cases, I think, to James Buchanan. James Buchanan had said he was not going to run for a second term, but the stuff he was doing sure indicated uh, that that he wanted to. So I look at people ranging from John Tyler and Millard Fillmore to Franklin Pierce. Uh, Chester Arthur was one who performed much better as a president than many people would have thought when he was vice president, and yet he couldn't quite get there. His party said, sorry, we're removing you from office by not even nominating you for the job you already have. And that's one that um, I believe had uh, Mark Hanna lived in 1904, he he would have been a, a powerful contender for Theodore Roosevelt in, in trying to become really the first VP who succeeded from uh, the death of a president to become um, to to become take the office for himself. And uh, so that, you know, Theodore Roosevelt has helped out a lot of modern vice presidents in that situation, making them the the assumption that not only do they get the office, thanks to 
Thank you, John Tyler, but right. also that they get to run again. Thank you, Theodore Roosevelt, and Calvin yep. Coolidge owes him, and uh, as does uh, Lyndon Johnson. Right. Well, I think you're. I think you're right. Pointing to, to to that as a as a great dynamic of showing this can work, and Coolidge was it was amazing because he he was the first one after that to to do that. Warren Harding dies. Calvin Coolidge becomes president. And Coolidge's case is interesting. I discuss him at some length in the chapter I have on being unable to serve, which is being, in a sense, removed from office by disability, because one of the issues I address in that chapter is the presidents who did not leave office, who were not removed, but may have been on the edge of at least being temporarily disabled by things like bone-crushing depression. Uh, Lincoln is one of those. Lincoln's depression is is well known. Now, he turned it in uh, very good directions in terms of uh, policy and character. Calvin Coolidge, when his son died in the White House, there was a complete change in his mannerisms, in his energy, in his interactions with the press. Coolidge became a different man at that point. The election process was already in motion for his reelection. Mm-hmm. And he just basically let it go. He didn't seem to care much, but he just let the process go on, even though in his own words, he basically said, you know, my my interest in the presidency, to paraphrase, was gone. It seemed like the light had gone out because of my son's death. Was he removed as a president? No. But knowing what we know now about depression and its effects, might we have considered as as a country, might there have at least been a debate on should he at least temporarily hand over the reins of power? I think that would have been an issue if we would have had a vice president in office, which we, of course, did not at the time because the 25th Amendment had not been passed. Yes, that's uh, the, the, that brings up a whole host of issues and, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, with the increasing knowledge about the mental illness and, and, um, how we view it back and forth because it's also, a sense that no president, the president can still operate. Uh, there's also, there would be that opinion now as well, where back then there wouldn't have been. I mean, Thomas Eagleton, the vice president, presidential candidate under McGovern in 72 is just even someone who was as liberal and considered in a lot of ways as McGovern just basically said, we thought about it. Back in 72, I mean, after that Eagle, it was discovered that Eagleton had the um, electrocution therapy. Um, right. We thought about it and we could have run on this issue and said, hey, we're going to keep him on. But 1972, mm-hmm. people would be talking about the nuclear button and all of this stuff. And so uh, that's interesting. I like that your book presents a lot of different ways. For a lot of people, it's just the I word. Mm-hmm. And now in recent times, the 25th, you know, definitely is more there. I always say the 25th was was passed actually just to give Hollywood script writers something to write about. <laughs> but <laughs> there, there's there's some truth to that, because I, I look at the end of the book, I, I basically take all this history and I rack and stack it. And I say, all right, we, we've addressed how presidents have been removed or attempts have been made to remove presidents or even cases where maybe they should have been removed. Now let's look at the when do you remove a president. And I I stack it up as different strategies for whether the president is unpopular, unable, or unfit. On unable, which is really what the 25th Amendment was designed to address, I find that it is highly likely 
given the precedent that Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush have established, it is highly likely that a president who knows he will be be disabled for a period of time, such as the use of anesthesia in an operation, it's highly likely that a president will self-remove for a period of time and give power to the vice president. The, The ice has been broken. The fourth section of the 25th Amendment, whereby the vice president and a majority of essentially the cabinet Uh, can decide to remove the president temporarily against his will or her will, I find that is almost unimaginable Mm -hmm. because there is no way for that to be seen as other than the vice president performing a kind of coup. And that is certainly the political spin that any president would put on it or the president's diehard supporters who don't agree with that decision. If there is such a consensus that the president is disabled, then it's hard to believe that the pressure wouldn't be put on the president to use Section 3. If it has to go to Section 4, really hard to imagine that working, especially with the high threshold for maintaining that control away from the president by getting two-thirds votes in both houses of Congress. I basically think declaring a disabled president, except in an obvious case, like a coma, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is virtually unimaginable. Yeah, that would seem to conform with Birch Bayh's feeling about it in the debate on the Senate floor. Um, the one thing they were clear on is they didn't want some group of doctors. They knew it was something that the Congress, you know, and, and the executive department, but also the Congress confirming it would have to get into. It would be a political decision, but a political decision mostly for a health reason. Uh, or right. some something like that. It was not to be, you're just unpopular, which, you know, a lot of the talk about the current president from critics, you hear them citing 25, you see a lot of hashtagging about 25 that doesn't, mm-hmm. they're saying it for health reasons, uh, they're citing that they're, their mm-hmm. own contentions about the president's mental health, but it's also a lot right. of, I just don't like the guy, let's use the 25. And I, I often find I'm reminding people, uh, you need Pence and you need the cabinet that the president has appointed. Uh, so, and, and on top of that, just in case there's some science fiction type or Hollywood type scenario where it's, um, you know, where it's, uh, the president, um, the vice president schemes with the cabinet so that a president now has to be wary about who they appoint to the, to the cabinet, which could be a, could, if yes. that was the only procedure, I could see where that would be a big downside to hiring good people in the cabinet who could replace you because there might be a coup against mm-hmm. you of sorts. Um, not only is there the, as you referenced, the, the, the scolding of the press and the public that would come from doing that if it was VP was involved in that. But it also, the, all the president has to do is write a letter. Then it goes back, to, then it goes to Congress and you need a two thirds of both bodies, which is higher standard mm-hmm. than impeachment. So 25 is really, exactly. um, and yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. There is, um, of those methods, you, there are even, um, smaller methods that I like that in your book you mm-hmm. identify and some of it is just, your opponents just stop you from doing things. The president is you know, <laughs> right. just. Yeah, it's a removal in place, if mm-hmm. you will. That is, and, and it's almost uh, oxymoron because you're not removing the president. But if you are undermining the president's powers in a way that the president cannot fully execute all of the powers and duties of the office in every fashion, that's a de facto removal or a partial removal. And I look at this on both sides. One is opponents. Most often, this is a recalcitrant Congress, someone who is 
vetoing absolutely everything, sight unseen, as the radical Republicans did with Andrew Johnson, for example, as John Tyler faced to, to some extent as well. But there's also being undermined by your own allies, by, by the people within your administration. This is not the so-called deep state that people muse about. These are very limited historical cases, and I could only find a few, where you had documented cases of people getting a presidential order, and instead of arguing back with the president, but then saying, you're the president, I'm not, I will faithfully execute your order, even though I disagree with it, where, where you had people actually take the order and simply ignore it, or do things that the president had said not to do. In one case, that's Ulysses S. Grant with Andrew Johnson, when Andrew Johnson ordered him not to do certain things in the South using the military, and Grant kept doing them. The most recent modern case is Richard Nixon, when you had people like the chief of staff, Haldeman, getting direct orders from the president, and Haldeman himself admitting in his diary, I did not pass on many of these orders. Now, mm -hmm. I think he deludes himself a little bit because he also says, and Nixon was okay with this. He knew that he had a tendency <laughs> to, to spout off, and he, he was fine with this as long as I checked back in with him. But there are other cases where you can find in the Nixon presidency where Nixon comes back fuming at Haldeman saying, why didn't you do this thing that I told you to? So I think Haldeman was deluding himself. Kissinger did the same thing. Kissinger took on some of the duties of the presidency himself when it appears that Nixon in the wilds of Watergate was self-medicating a little too much with his alcohol. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they couldn't even be sure if he was drunk or not. Kissinger sent a letter to the Soviet premier on his own volition, but with the name of the president. That, mm -hmm. that does not mean Nixon was formally removed from office at that moment, but it certainly is a case where he was not fully the president that we usually take for granted when we use the term. Yeah, I think that time during that uh, 73, 74 is an interesting time to look at the presidency and where you have the Haldeman kind of and Butterfield, his his assistant confirms this, um, th that type of way to handle Richard Nixon. Well, you know, he doesn't really mean it, but you're absolutely right. There are cases where with both both of them, that he would come back yelling, why isn't this done? Or waiting for Nixon to confirm it. Right. That's waiting for that blow up. Like with the enemies list, I believe some of what went on was there's this list. And then, you know, it took Nixon, you know, Nixon sees that the president of Harvard College is or Harvard University is in the White House and he's screaming at Butterfield. You know, Butterfield gets the buzzer. Um, and by the way, I can't imagine any job that would be worse than, um, you know, you're sitting in a room and at any time that buzzer goes off and it's Richard Nixon. I, yeah, I can imagine one worst case and, and it might involve the, the mercurial president we, we have now just because Nixon, and, and this is interesting, I heard this recently from uh, Marvin Kalb who was speaking at the Brookings Institution and he, he was on Nixon's enemies list. And he's, he ta he's taken a look back at the rhetoric against the press in the modern administration and previous ones. And he said, you know, there, there are some real similarities between Nixon and Trump in terms of tendencies towards obstruction of justice and tendencies towards abuse of power. But, but Marvin Kalb said, you know, Nixon was an accomplished representative, a prominent senator, an eight-year vice president probably one of, mm -hmm. again, one of the better resumes for someone to prepare for the job of president. He had served in the military, put his life on the line in the war. 
that's a very different person making decisions than Donald Trump. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And he makes the, he made the case that, of course, what, what Nixon did was, was abhorrent and he himself was on the enemies list. But he said at least there was a pattern of decades of strategic thinking of national security interests. You can disagree with where he came out on his decisions about national security interests, but he clearly had thought mm -hmm. through them in a logical way based on intelligence and other information. Whereas with this president, no one's quite sure if any of that obtains, which leads to a very different racking and stacking of the methods people are talking about for removing the president. Yeah, I think a lot of it, If it, it, when you hear the talk about the current president, first of all, we have to start from a phenomenon that uh, probably more than than ever, there are just a, a large group of people just from the very start. The I word has come out right. left and right, you know, just to, it. And I think that's because we are talking about a president. I talked about that two thirds that when when two thirds of the Washington is kind of against you. In other words, you have some of your party and the other party, the Democrats against you. You know, you're in trouble. I don't know that he's quite there. He's not quite there in the way that other presidents were. But um, there are a substantial group of Republicans who have withheld support from this president in a way that they would not have with other um, Republicans. He may or may not. This is why it's a very it's not an easy thing just to state. It's a live political situation. He may or may not be making up for that with additions to the Republican base or the active Republican group that has never come out for elections. That would be his contention and certainly the contention of the supporters that I see on social media um, that who cares that we lost um, the National Review right. crowd. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, but the fact is that, uh, uh, there, there always, there has been a bunch of talk about mm -hmm. that. It is interesting to have a book like this at this time to give people uh, to illuminate the various, um, methods that do go on in the, in, that can be used in an American Republic based and, and on the situation. That, let me put yeah. that frame on it, Bruce, because what we've got is a, a case where we now have a president whom substantial portions of the American um, electorate have said he's unpopular. Poll after poll shows that he's unable, according to many people, there's been discussion of the 25th amendment because he's simply unable to exercise the duties of the office, whether due to some mental illness or some other uh, constitutional. And I mean that in a physical sense, not a uh, legal sense inability. 
And then many people say unfit for office. Well, mm-hmm. there are different remedies for each. Generally, for an unpopular president, the, do- the dominant way of dealing with that is you don't reelect them. That's why the founders went for a four-year term instead of something like a 12-year term, which had been discussed. Now, there's an interesting, there's an interesting bias towards that method because Jim Comey himself, when he was in testimony earlier this year, he, he said any method short of an election for removing a president is dangerous because the election gives legitimacy. And I think his words were something like, we shouldn't let the American people off the hook. Uh, they need to be involved in, in a removal if there is one. So we've got unpopular. Mm-hmm. For unable, we've talked about the 25th Amendment, Section 4 being unlikely uh, in almost any scenario. Being unfit, it does come down to impeachment. And absent evidence that comes out from the Mueller investigation and other probes on treason or actual bribery, then we're stuck with the generic high crimes and misdemeanors. And I spend a healthy amount of time in the book analyzing high crimes and misdemeanors. What were they meant to mean? How will they work in practice? To me, it comes down to this when you look at the lessons of impeachment attempts before. And I'm talking here primarily Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Bill Clinton. Being merely unfit for the office, which is the condition intended by the founders to trigger impeachment, that has never been enough to do the job alone. It, it hasn't worked. People thought Andrew Johnson overwhelmingly was, was unfit, and there was mm-hmm. even a two-thirds majority in the Senate against him, which should have been able to convict him. But it remains hard to imagine that successful conviction without a couple of other conditions in place. First, a president needs to have been found to have harmed the very institution of government. Bill Clinton's case showed that. Yes, there was perjury, but it was perjury to cover up a personal indiscretion, not a perjury to abuse the office for personal gain or to try to prevent his own removal in another way. He must also be deeply unpopular. It's hard to imagine a popular president, even with a majority in Congress against him or her due to the vagaries of the election cycle. It's hard to imagine a popular president having an impeachment resolution worked. And again, the Clinton case shows this. Clinton's popularity ratings went up during his impeachment trial, and that swayed voters. But also, the removal has to seem Mm. more advantageous for the opposition in the next election than the president's continued presence in office would be. And this is really what got Andrew Johnson off, because they had U.S. Grant waiting in the wings. They knew with high degree of confidence that Grant was going to be the next president. Mm -hmm. And there were people at the time that I found in the record saying, do we really want to impeach Andrew Johnson and put in the wild card of Ohio's crazy Benjamin Wade, a guy that kept pistols at his desk in the, in the Senate, somebody who shot at union Mm -hmm. soldiers retreating to get them to go back to the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Do we want to put crazy Ben Wade in office or Shouldn't we just bank on the fact that in a few months we're going to have an election and our man Grant is going to be in? So absent that kind of political calculation of certainty about what's going to follow, I just don't see a way that impeachment goes forward if people are reading their history. You know, I tend to agree with that. I think that was the key factor in 87 with Ronald Reagan. I discussed that on a previous cast that – um, many of those senators 
on that committee investigating or their friends were right. going to run for office in one year and why go through this. Um, it, it does seem like to me that Luther Martin was right in a sense that it's really difficult to, to impeach a president. Um, it's a very high bar, but, um, that, uh, exactly. It has to be that the other side would gain an advantage because in generally there's this kind of Brutus factor that, Oh, you had to do it that way, uh, you know, and now you become the target. Um, and, and, and there'll be a Mark Anthony waiting in the, in the wings, um, who, who will be making you the villain now if you pursue this impeachment process. So that's, that's quite interesting, but there are a number of other, um, plain, simply fine methods of the normal politics of, uh, right. getting what you want. One is electing a Congress of your party. Another is convincing your own party not to nominate. Um, I think personally, those who might have feelings about Trump, um, you know, that's probably not a, I, it doesn't appear that that's a method. I mean, you have somebody who's actually among mm -hmm. the Republican party getting high poll ratings as a president because there, there is this base. So that's probably, you're not going to go the Buchanan route. But the other methods, such as I think we see certain comments from surrogates, um, the the anonymous editorial that hey, I'm actually here, not following orders when I don't have to. And there's to a real ethical thing. issue there, Bruce, which is if you're if you're serving the president mm -hmm. and you're faithfully serving the president, you can disagree with any particular decision, and then you have a choice to make, which is do do you execute that decision because it was the president who was elected, not you, or mm -hmm. do you resign? And if it's something that is that you think is unethical, then you resign and you speak up through oversight committees or, or to the press. But unfaithfully serving the president, thinking that you perhaps alone, although in this case it appears to be a group of like-minded people, but a small group of people somehow know better than all the people who elected the president or the president himself or the others who are not doing it, that is a very slippery ethical slope that people should be very careful of. Very slippery, very, uh, you could see the disadvantage. It's also random. So in other words, now you've taken a president, as you say, that was elected. Uh, now you've taken a president and you never know anymore. Uh, once you see that that that's there, you never know anymore. What, at what point is it going to be that they can't use their executive power because somebody has decided that? No, no, I, I, I do tend to agree with some critics there that that is a very slippery slope. I may not go as far as to say to, to use the deep state, um, metaphor, but it's certainly even in, even in a, a unless it's something that's of grave national concern, like a, a case where the 25th should have been used, but was not another method, of course, that will be no over history, the assassinations that have occurred. Um, you know, uh, some of them uh, will be well known. I think mm -hmm. the McKinley example is is one that uh, um, it, you know is interesting. Um, much beloved president. And and by the way, the the title "How to Get Rid of a President" sure makes it sound like this is an instruction manual, <laughs> when in fact it's a, it's a history book. But uh, just to make clear, the removing a president by force. I take that off the table in terms of uh, proscription because once you do that, once one person decides that they know better than 300 million people who should run the country, 
you're, you're bypassing all of our norms and institutions that have worked so well. So I describe it as something that has happened, but explicitly rule that out as, as ever acceptable. In researching that side of it, in researching how presidents have been removed by force, two things struck me. One is I did not realize, going back especially into the 19th century, that there had been other assassination attempts that don't get as much attention. You and many of your listeners will know about the assassination attempt on Andrew Jackson that by all rational measures should have succeeded, a man with two loaded pistols, both of which malfunctioned. But other cases like that, so that was one, is just learning some of these cases that have been forgotten by many. The other one was finding out some of the details of things like McKinley's assassination that you mentioned. I found it hard to believe that after the assassination of Lincoln and after the assassination of James Garfield, that there still was not what we would consider a modern secret service protecting the president. It just didn't exist as such. And yet, when McKinley went to that Pan-American exhibition in Buffalo, he was surrounded by by defenses. He was surrounded by military units. He was surrounded by police. He had private guards. There were National Guard regiments covering the entrances to the exhibition. Next to him on the stage where he was shaking hands, he had soldiers, police detectives, and agents of the small secret service of the time, all of them within a few feet of him. And yet you still had a political killing. You still had an anarchist killing in the wave of anarchist-related killings that were taking place throughout the Western world at the time. Uh, that's something that the Secret Service certainly has learned lessons from. For, for this book, I did talk to a couple of former Secret, uh, Secret Service officers about how they looked at the problem of people trying to remove the president, especially through assassination. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, we, we look at all these old cases to try to figure out what are the lessons learned and how can we keep learning from them. Uh, McKinley case was an absolutely fascinating one. Well, let me, let me close on one thought, Bruce, which is that mm -hmm. for me, at least looking back at this history is, is not just, oh, oh, that's an interesting story. Although there are dozens of upon dozens of those that I discovered in researching this, that I, that I tried to put into the book in a, in a vignette fashion. So there, there's not going to be any 80 page story in this book. They're all quick hit mini stories. It's not just that those are interesting stories about our past that have gone overlooked. It's that they illuminate the present. And even if you look back 200 years at some of the things that we've gone through, we can avoid making some of the same mistakes of the past. If you are looking to remove a president, you can look at the ways that it has failed before and say, those conditions also obtain now, so we need to do it differently. If you're looking to prevent the removal of a president, you can look back and say, how were some unfortunate attempts to remove a president foiled before, and how can we work towards that? That actually informs both the, the public debate and the political practice more so than simply looking at an opinion poll and moving forward. Hopefully, it can help inform everyone on those issues. I think so. Uh, my guest has been David Priest the author of How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. David, thanks very much for Bruce, coming always, on the program. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Big thanks to David Priest 
for coming on the show and being a listener and supporter to the program. A reminder about the Vice Presidents of the United States cast. If you can, subscribe to that podcast. It's a young podcast that needs help. And uh, go and give it a review on iTunes. That's very helpful. Or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, etc. Vice Presidents of the United States podcast. Dave Priest's book is How to Get Rid of a President. It is on Amazon right now. So be sure to go and check it out. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.